before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we're going to start a uh, short series that will take us uh, through Labor Day for the next five weeks. We're going to read together uh, about the prophets Elijah and Elisha from the books of First and Second Kings. I mean, if you've uh, been with us over the last few months, you know that we've read a bunch uh, from the life of David together. Well, after uh, David's death, his son Solomon became the king, and Solomon. Uh, had a pretty good long run of years, but he, he faltered pretty badly at the end. And after Solomon's death, Israel uh, fractured in two. And so along with uh, all of the, the civil trouble that you can imagine in that situation, the religious fidelity of the people began to wane too. And so about 50 years after Solomon's death, Elijah appears on the scene to call people back to fidelity to God. So I'm going to read uh, from 1 Kings 17 for us. I'm just going to read the first half of what's printed there in the order of worship, uh, verses 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty till the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would meet us now in this story that we have read and heard together, that you'd meet us all uh, in exactly the states and conditions we're in this morning, those of us who uh, are ready to hear from you, those of us who feel close to you, those of us who feel far from you, those of us who are bored or distracted or tired or sad, meet all of us. Show us the grace of Jesus and uh, change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
Well, the uh, Olympics end today, or they did end, or they will end tonight. I'm not sure with all the time changes, but I'm going to talk about them one more week. Uh, I think that it was in uh, 2016, and I think that it was a stand-up comic uh, who first suggested this idea, and it's an idea that I've seen floating around again for the last uh, few weeks. This comic suggested that every event at the Olympics should include a normal person competing alongside all of the actual athletes. I mean, that way you could tell uh, really easily just how amazing the feats the Olympians are doing really are. And I think that's such a great idea. I actually imagine it sometimes while I'm watching the Olympics, you know, just somebody's dad pulled off of the streets to try his hand at the 10-meter platform diving competition. You know, he's can't even get up the ladder without starting to cry, you know? I've actually tried to think through what it would be like if I tried to swim with Katie Ledecky in the 1,500-meter freestyle. She, she would finish that race days before I could finish it. And, you know, the truth is the most likely outcome is that I would uh, expire before I was able to finish. The difference between the real and the imagined would be very clear. And I'm telling you, that is precisely the reason that Elijah the prophet bursts onto the scene. His whole job is to make clear the stark, stark difference between the living God and all of the fake gods that the people all around him had started running after. His whole job, his whole game is to show the beauty and the good of the real over the shabbiness and the trouble of the fake. And I think people like us have a lot to learn from this Iron Age prophet about exactly that. So when we're introduced to Elijah uh, at the beginning of chapter 17, we didn't read the first six verses, but you could later if you wanted to. When we're introduced to him, we're told absolutely nothing about him other than where he used to live and his name. He comes onto the scene unannounced. He comes unknown, and he comes on fire. He goes to Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, and this is what he says to King Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... There shall be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. So he announces this devastating drought that's about ready to come. No doubt a famine following close on its heels. And then he turns on his heels and he hightails it out into the wilderness to hide. So what is happening here? Well, in order to answer that, we need to know a little bit about King Ahab. Uh, his dad, who was the king before him, his name was Omri. Omri, in an effort to fortify his hold on power, made a political alliance with uh, the king of Tyre in the north, just to the north of Israel. And that alliance was sealed uh, by a marriage. Omri's son Ahab married the princess of Tyre. And I'm pretty sure many of you have heard her name before because it has filtered down into popular culture in lots of different contexts, meaning lots of different things. Her name was Jezebel. And Jezebel brought with her 800 
prophets and priests of the gods Baal and Asheroth when she moved in to live with Ahab. And then Ahab became king, and he built a temple to Baal and set up an altar to Baal. So Baal was uh, considered the storm god. He was known as the rider of the clouds. And so the rain cycles and the crop cycles were closely tied to the worship of Baal. The idea was that he controlled the rain. So if you wanted rain for your crops, you had to pay him his due. So here's the truth. That kind of stuff had been happening in Israel for a while. I mean, people had worshipped other gods in Israel for a while. It's just that the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel sped it up. In a way, it sanctioned it in the state. And it's not like God's people uh, had stopped acknowledging him. It's not like they had stopped even worshiping him from time to time. It's more like they had begun to hedge their bets. You know, like, I don't know if Yahweh can give us all that we need. I don't know if Yahweh can give us all that we want. And there might be some other gods who can. And I don't know about you, but when I hear it described like that, it hits kind of close to home to me. <laughs> and I think it's worth thinking about all of the ways that you and I might hedge our bets with God. I mean, it's not with, it's not with bales. Of course it's not with bales. But it could be with our money, you know, which we're really, really tempted to rely on to give us things that only God can really give us, safety and security and peace. You know how it is. Our money can give us a shady facsimile of those things, and so we lean into it as hard as we can into getting it, into accumulating it, into thinking about it obsessively all of the time instead of God. Or maybe... Maybe we hedge our bets with a relationship that we know that we probably should not be in or one that we're pursuing that we know we shouldn't be pursuing. Or maybe we hedge our bets with that addiction that we feed on the sly. You know, they make us feel wanted. They help me forget my trouble. I know God has something better. I know he has something truer in mind for me, but these things deliver quicker than he does. And so I will nurture them. This is how our wandering human hearts work, every one of them. And First and Second Kings is a record of all of the pain and trouble that happens when we wander. But church, I want to ask you, do you know what God does to sheep who wander? He runs after them in love. That's what God does. He runs after them in love, and sometimes he does it in really surprising and in really unexpected ways. That is the meaning, church. That is the meaning of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It is God running after the wayward sheep in love to bring us home. 
It's God running after us in love to forgive us by his grace and to slowly heal us and to make us new by his grace and then to sustain us by his grace in this life he has called us to live. God runs after wayward sheep. I mean, maybe he's running after you right now. I don't know, but I know he does. And for God's people, under the terrible, terrible leadership of Ahab, he ran after them with Elijah. <laughs> and Elijah goes right to the heart of the matter with the king. He says, okay, you think that Baal brings the dew? You think that Baal brings the rain? Well, there's not going to be any more of that stuff until I say so. And the difference between the real and the imagined will become painfully clear. And that's what happens. And so after hiding in the wilderness for a while from Ahab and from Jezebel, God sends Elijah to a widow who lives in Zarephath in Sidon. Now, that might not mean much to us, but to people who knew the geography of the time, that is a huge deal. Because what it means is that God has sent Elijah outside of Israel. God has sent Elijah across the border in, into the north, way up north, into the land of Tyre. As one uh, writer put it that I read this week, God sends him to Balesville in Pagantown. And it is no coincidence, I'm telling you that right now, God sends him to Jezebel's homeland, to the heart of Baal worship. It is deeply symbolic, classic prophet stuff. And God sends him to a widow. Which, if you'll let me put it like this, is a classic God move. The unlikely outsider, stuck hopelessly on the margin, she gets the visit from the prophet of God. <laughs> Jesus pointed that out in the gospel lesson that we heard this morning. He told the synagogue in his hometown, you know, there were lots of widows in Israel at the time. But Elijah went to her. It made him so mad. It made his neighbors so mad when they heard it. They wanted to kill him. And all I can say is we should get used to it because that is how God does things. So this drought had obviously extended to the north. The predictable famine that followed on the heels of it has taken hold. And that widow is out gathering sticks when Elijah sees her at the gate. And the setup could not be more provocative than it is. Elijah asks her for some water. That is a big ask in a drought, but she's willing to do it. And at verse 11 says, as she was going to bring it, Elijah uh, calls out to her again, and he throws in another little request. Oh, yeah, bring me a cake of bread, too. Bring me some food. Well, <laughs> this is too much for this beautiful woman. <laughs> and she turns to him exasperated, and she says, as Yahweh, your God lives. I mean, she knows he's not from around there. As your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour, and only a little bit of oil. And you have caught me out here gathering up some sticks for the last meal that I'm ever going to eat with my son. I'm heading back to make our last meal, and we're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. 
the fake gods have failed this lady because they're fake, because they can't deliver her. And now she's at the end of her rope, and the only place she has to turn is into sorrow. So the question is, can the living God go all the way up there to the north? Can he go all the way up there to the north, to enemy territory, to the place where they don't worship him? Can he go to this woman who's never worshipped him even one minute in her whole life? Can God do that and turn things around for her? Well, church, the good news is that God probably did that for a million and one people between 6 and 6.05 a.m. this morning because that's what he does. Of course he can do that. But she has no idea. She has no idea if he can. She doesn't even know that it's an option on the table for her. And so in verse 13, Elijah says to her, Don't be afraid. That's a gutsy thing to say to someone in that situation. He tells her to go and to do what she was planning to do, um, but definitely make me a little cake of bread first, he says. And then he tells her why she can do this without being afraid. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, The jar of flour will not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. You will have everything that you need. You know, it's it's an incredible moment. (laughs) It is such a clear picture of what faith actually is is. Is she going to lean all of her weight, all of her weight into the promise of God or not? I mean, that's always how faith works. I don't care what you know. (laughs) I don't care how much you have. You know, you could have a theology degree. You could have a philosophy degree. You could have both of those degrees. You could have none of those degrees. You could have a million bucks in the bank. You might not even have two pennies to rub together. You could have a lot of status and dignity and power in the world, or you could be the last and the least and the forgotten, and none of it, none of that stuff matters at all when we come to this question, because we all come to this question without any external props holding us up. Am I going to trust in the promise of God or not? Am I going to believe him or not? Am I going to rest all of my weight into his promises to me? Or am I going to hedge my bets just a little bit? And this beautiful woman, she walks off and she leans all of her weight into the promise of God. Verse 15 says she went and did as Elijah told her to do. And she and he and her household ate for many days. (laughs) The jar of flour was not spent. The jug of oil was not empty. 
So in the middle of the drought, here's what happened. In the middle of the drought, in the middle of this famine, God supplies daily bread for these three. The widow, the prophet, the son. It's this intimate family picture of the larger point of Elijah's whole life. The difference between the real living God and the fake gods is made as clear as day. He shows the good and the beauty of the real against the shabbiness and trouble of the fake. And that picture just gets bigger and bigger over the course of his life. And one of my favorite things about this story is the way that this sustenance works out. You know, this woman does not go home that day to find bags and bags and bags of flour stacked up. There are no barrels of oil waiting for her in her home. You know, it would have been great if it happened that way, but it didn't. It's just that same small jar. The same small jug. And there is just enough, church, there's just enough that first day to make bread for three instead of two. And every day that same quiet, beautiful drama plays out. Is there enough? He said there'd be enough. There's enough. And that is how the daily drama of faith often plays out for me and you too. I mean, just think of whatever it is uh, that you hedge your, your bets with. <laughs> you know that thing that you lean on that can never really deliver more than a whiff of what you really need? That thing that leads to trouble and pain for you most of the time? Listen to what God says to people like you and me. He says we can stop leaning on it. <laughs> we can stop. Because there will be enough today. There will be enough today. Just enough. Enough of the forgiving grace of Jesus. Enough of the renewing and sustaining and healing grace of the Spirit. There will be enough today. Just enough of the strong, sure love of the Father. He said that there will be enough every single day. So let's lean all of our weight into that promise and let's find the living God to be true let me pray for us Father we ask that you would help us to see again you know we experience it in our life like every day <laughs> the shabbiness and trouble of the fake <laughs> help us to see it help us to see it clearly and to believe in the good and the true and the beautiful that you have given to us in Jesus. And help us to lean all of our weight, everything that we have into that promise that there will be enough for us today. Do this so that we will mature and grow up in our faith. Do this so that through us you can love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.